I like that intro. You guys like that intro music? It's kind of like a little snappy, and it's not as dancey as the last time I preached, so I'm not dancing, but I do like it. It's good. Good morning, Platte Park Church. Welcome. We are so glad that you are here. As you've heard us say, we're starting our fall series on prayer. We're going through together Sky Jathani's book, What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer? And this is part one, so you are not too late. It's the perfect time to jump into a small group and journey with others as we talk about prayer. Today we're going to talk about what prayer is and what prayer isn't. And I love that we get to start here because prayer is one of those practices that's so easy to get over familiar with. Like we talk about it a lot. We just kind of assume we all know what we're talking about when we say prayer. And we never really stop to take a look at how we're experiencing prayer. And that's really what we're going to do in this series. We're going to examine our personal experience of prayer. This isn't about really what you believe necessarily about prayer, although that'll be part of it. We'll talk about that. This is more about how you're experiencing prayer and how you're experiencing God through and in prayer. Prayer is sacred. This is really holy ground here. And there's a deep tenderness and mystery to this conversation. Some of you might know I work as a spiritual director, and it's a deep honor to companion people in this space. And I know firsthand how much hurt we can carry when it comes to the conversation of prayer. I'm actually really nervous to preach on this because there's so much nuance in our experience of prayer that it's hard to communicate in the preaching format. It would be much more fun and easier for me to sit with each one of you and hear personally about your own experience of prayer, both the highs and the lows of that. And that's what we're going to get to do in small groups. So I really encourage you to get to get in connected with a small group and get to know other people through this. So as we begin our time together today and just this series in general, I want to say that because I want us to all be really, really gentle with ourselves in this conversation, and with each other in this conversation as we talk about prayer. So what prayer is and isn't. To talk about what it is, let's start with a basic definition. The Oxford Dictionary defines prayer as a solemn request for help or expression of thanks addressed to God or an object of worship. Historically, we know prayer's been around as long as humans have been around in some way, shape, or form. And ultimately, prayer comes out of this very real tension that we experience as humans, which is that we like to be in control. We like to have answers. We like to have logic. We like to have reason. We like to kind of know what's happening and why. And in reality, this is challenging because we're in control of very, very little when it comes to kind of the big picture of our lives, right? We don't control when or how our lives begin. We don't control the weather. We don't control the passage of time. We don't control each other as much as we would like to or try. (laughs) Our existence is at the mercy of so many things that are outside of our control. And at the center of what it means to be human is living with this deep sense of existential vulnerability. And we see this come out in prayer. Whether we ever say this out loud or not, Prayer traditionally can be viewed as a way to lessen this existential angst by getting whatever or whomever is in control on our side. 
This is the idea of God like this cosmic vending machine. And if you just figure out like the right combination of coins, God will give you that starburst of all pinks that you want. Like this, we just have this transactional view of approaching God. If we do X, then God will do Y. This is the same line of thinking that underlies sacrifices, right? Like the concept of offering sacrifices. We want to appease this God. And we're trying to convince this God to listen to us, to be on our side, to do what we would do if we were God. And historically, this has been tricky because gods have been largely hard to convince. They're hard to pin down. They're moody. They're volatile. They're vindictive. They're all of these things. When you think about these kind of ancient deities, they're hard to convince. And this is the image that comes to my mind when I think about this posture towards prayer. This is my daughter, Ava. She is at the Butterfly Pavilion here. How many of you guys have been to the Butterfly Pavilion and held Rosie? All right, this is probably like Rosie 15. It's like Ralphie. Like, there's just always a Rosie. Ava is three in this picture. She, she loves this kind of stuff. This is my kid who picks up snakes. Like, she loves holding Rosie. And before and during while you're holding Rosie, that Rosie's handlers are giving you all these instructions, like no sudden movements, don't pet Rosie, don't shake Rosie. In case you're wondering, like Ava was, don't hug Rosie. She's not a hugger. Like, so just don't do it. And they do this because you're holding this thing that if you make a wrong move, it's going to react, right? And now tarantulas aren't like super poisonous, but it would bite you. And this is how I think so much of our approach to prayer has been. Don't make this wrong move because you don't know what this God's going to do. And you can see then why there's this huge pressure to do prayer right, to get this right. Because if we do, then God's going to listen and God's going to do the thing that we're asking God to do. But if we don't, we've got this tarantula in our hand. And who knows what that tarantula is going to do. So you can see this tension, right, and how natural it is for us as a species to shift the control when we talk about prayer, to shift the emphasis, I mean, when we talk about prayer from who God is and what God does to who we are and what we do. And the way that we determine if we're doing this right is by evaluating the outcome. Did God do what I asked God to do in the way that I asked God to do it? If so, what an answer to prayer. I like to think of this as like the touchdown prayer. You know, like when they score a touchdown, they're like, thank you, God, for letting me score that touchdown. Like, thank you for letting me do the thing that I wanted to do in the way that I wanted to do it. That's an answer to prayer. And prayer becomes this thing that depends on us rather than this thing that depends on God. No matter how you are raised or how you approach prayer now, We've all been formed by this idea, this transactional thinking about prayer. And we can tend to approach prayer as trying to get God to do what we would do if we were God. Now, we might not say that out loud, but I think that this underlies a lot of our experience of prayer. Prayer has become a tool that we use to act on God rather than an avenue by which God acts on us. You see the difference? Prayer is a tool that we use to act on God rather than a tool that God uses to act on us. And that's the under, 
that's the underlying attitude behind the question that Jesus gets from one of his disciples this week. And this comes right before our gospel text. And the question is, Lord, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. This is a very common question for a rabbi. Each rabbi, like each pastor now, kind of had their own style and approach to prayer. What's uncommon, per usual, is, that, is Jesus' response, is how he answers this question. He replies with the Lord's Prayer. We prayed that today. And then gives this fascinating parable, which is where we're going to focus our time. So if you would, we've got Bibles in the pews in front of you. Grab a Bible and come with me to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be, start off in verse 5. So Jesus has just gotten this question, Lord, teach us to pray. How do we pray? And he responds, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this is one of those passages where if we just read it from our context, we're going to miss a lot of the nuance and the depth that's going on. So the way to pray that Jesus is teaching his followers centers on one thing, God as our Father. Jesus goes on to illustrate what kind of a father God is by telling us two parables. The first centers around hospitality laws of the ancient Near East, which let me tell you, we're a big deal. If someone came to your house, no matter when, no matter what, no matter who they were, you were obligated to give them food and shelter. Meaning you wouldn't think twice about waking your friend's whole family up to borrow something to give to someone. Now, those of us who are parents can attest to the chaos that would break out in the family bed if someone comes banging on the door at midnight, begging for some bread to make a PB&J for their buddy whose flight was delayed coming out of Chicago and is now on the way to their house, right? This would not, this, this context is so foreign to us. And I just, I would offer the thing that makes sense to me in this context is that the cursing that I do in my mind when a delivery person has the audacity to ring my doorbell between the hours of 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. when I could possibly have a child napping, that's what this is like, right? Like, the, we're, we're lost on this, the impact of this is lost on us because we have such a different cultural context, but this would have been a really jarring invitation to Jesus' followers to pray in a completely different way than they had prayed. There is an incredible permission to come to God here. Instead of tiptoeing around this tarantula, you're invited to bang on the door at midnight because this God will answer. Jesus then goes on to encourage those listening to persist in prayer, not because of how they're asking, but because of who they're asking. 
Sometimes this passage gets misinterpreted as just ask until you wear God down. And that's not what this is saying. What Jesus is saying is he's shifting the focus away from the action of prayer, how we do this thing, to the object of prayer, who we are doing this to, who we are asking. And this is huge because what Jesus is ultimately saying is you can come and ask. You can keep asking. You can knock on the door because this God is not like those other gods. This God is not volatile. This God is not vindictive. This God is not scary. This is a good, kind parent who wants to give good gifts to their children. You don't need to be afraid to ask. This is a good parent. Jesus' listeners would have also understood that by using some really specific language here, Jesus is making a pointed reference, a callback to the Exodus. When God calls the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. So if you would flip with me to Exodus chapter 4, this is towards the beginning of your Bibles. I want us to pay attention to two things here in chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 1. Here, God is essentially telling Moses to go rally the troops. Like, hey, we're going to, we're going to leave Egypt. I'm going to do this miraculous thing. And our guy is a realist, and Moses is skeptical of this. And Moses is essentially saying to God, like, cool, cool. So, just so we're clear, you want me to believe that I'm just going to go tell these people, you, God, came to me in the wilderness and said, we're going to go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's going to let us go? And the Lord replies, what is that in your hand? Now, just quick background here. Uh, Moses grew up in Egypt, but he is an Israelite. And before this happens, Moses was in an altercation, shall we say, and things escalated quickly, and Moses killed a guy. He kills this Egyptian. And so he's laying low for a while, and he's working outside of Egypt as a shepherd for his father-in-law, which is why he's out in the wilderness in the first place, where he sees this burning bush and God appears to him. And staffs are these big giant sticks that shepherds hold and have, and they use it to tend their sheep, to help them take care of these sheep. So God says, what's that in your hand? And it's a staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. And when Moses throws it on the ground, it becomes a snake. And Moses, because again, he's a realist, jumps back because he's afraid of this snake. And then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So Moses grabs it and it became a staff in his hand. And God says, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. This staff is a sign that Moses can use to help convince people that God is on his side, on their side. The word here that's translated snake is the same Hebrew root word that Luke uses in his gospel in Greek to translate in English as serpent. You see how confusing this gets? This is the same word just bouncing around three different languages. And the, the whole idea of Moses' staff, both here and later in the Exodus, is actually a really fascinating conversation. That's another sermon for another day. But what I want you to understand here is this, that when Jesus' followers hear him say, which of you, like a father's not going to, if you ask for a fish, is going to give him a snake, they would have known he's just not making some random comparison about a psycho dad. They would have understood that when he uses this bait and switch of a snake, he's calling to mind this, this moment, 
when instead of just telling Moses, hey, I'm going to be with you, just believe that, okay, buddy? What God does is shows Moses, I will be with you. This is a sign. I will be with you. I am a parent who is good and you can trust me. I am on your side. Speaking of God as a parent, the other thing that would have been very apparent to Jesus' audience in this would be if you jump down to verse 21 in chapter 4, Moses and God are kind of game planning about what they're going to say to Pharaoh here. And the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. Parent language. So we're going to leave aside the murder here for another day. Again, that's another sermon for another day. I want you to recognize how powerfully Jesus is connecting God, this idea of God as a father. We pray God our father because look at the history of God as our father. He's reminding the Israelites who they are because of who God is. Israel is a people who have been defined by God's presence with them, God's power with them. And that is never more apparent than in the Exodus story. So much of the Old Testament is about how God is on their side. God is the parent who will not forget them. God is the parent who will rescue them, who will protect them, who will provide for them, who will bring them home. And recall also that the people that Jesus is speaking to in this conversation are under Roman rule. They are oppressed right now. And what they are doing is asking, seeking, knocking, crying out to God to come again and be on their side, to get them out of this. And one of the big themes of Luke's whole gospel where we see this happen is this new kingdom that God is bringing people into. And that he's inaugur- Jesus is inaugurating this. And so this passage is in the big picture framing what Jesus is doing as the new exodus. I'm taking you out of the rule of sin into the kingdom of God. And there is freedom for all of God's children, not just my firstborn Israel, for all of us. So Jesus answers the question of, Lord, how do we pray? By reminding us who God is. This is a good parent. We pray to a good father who wants to give good gifts. Jesus is saying prayer isn't about getting God on our side because God already is on our side. We're invited to ask, to seek, to knock at the door of a good, kind parent because we are God's beloved children. It's a good parent. The Jewish theologian, philosopher, and activist, Abraham Joshua Heschel, put it like this. The issue of prayer is not prayer. The issue of prayer is God. The issue of prayer is not prayer. The issue of prayer is God. Any conversation about prayer is actually a conversation about God. The real question here is not the how or the what or the when. It's the who. It's the question that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? 
that's why a transactional approach to prayer can be so damaging. Because what happens when the God that you're praying to doesn't hold up your idea of God's end of that transaction? What happens when you ask and God doesn't seem to answer? What happens when you knock and the door doesn't open or it feels like it slams in your face? What do you do when God doesn't seem to be on your side? I would guess that every one of us in this room has had an experience of this, where we've asked God for something, we've begged God for something, and it didn't happen in the way that we asked God for it to happen. This can be anything from your team winning a big game to just life, literal life and death. And as humans who we've talked about, we want answers, we want explanation, we want reasons. I had a directee last week who was like, I just want God to make sense of this. Who of us have not been there? I just want God to make sense of this. And so we typically do one of two things. We either internalize it, this is our fault. I should have prayed more. This is about me. I could have put a few more prayer requests into the bird's nest, and then this would have happened. And that doesn't mean we don't put prayer requests out. That doesn't mean we don't ask. But we make it something that's, that depends on us because we want an explanation. We see this line of thinking in, do you remember when Jesus heals the man who's born blind and his disciples are like, okay, but like whose fault is it? This guy's or his parents? Because somebody's got to be at fault here. We want an explanation. That's a human desire. That's okay. Where it gets tricky is when we then project it into, our, into who God is. Because the other thing, when we don't internalize it, we externalize it. And then it becomes something that God's doing. Instead of, if I would have just prayed harder, it becomes everything from this theology that God, you know, has everything mapped out for me and this just wasn't it. And the ultimate conclusion that, that God doesn't care about me personally. God doesn't love me. I asked for this thing. If God wanted me to have this, God would give me this thing. So therefore, I guess God doesn't want me to have this, but I really want this. So how do I reconcile that with a good parent? And I'm not talking about like parking spots here. I'm talking about like real deep kind of prayers with God, please, please, please don't let this person die. Please take this cup from me. Please take this thorn from me. What do we do when God doesn't do the thing that we're asking God to do? This is the reason prayer is such tender ground, because at stake is our very experience of God. Jesus tells his followers they can pray because God is a good parent who can be trusted. And we also know that a few short chapters later, this same Jesus is going to be on his knees in a garden, begging God, banging on this door, distressed to the point of sweating blood, saying any other way, please, 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 Father, any other way, take this cup from me. Do not do this. And yet, what does Jesus say? And yet, not what I will, but what you will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What Jesus is modeling here is that the essence of prayer is a trusting surrender. 
This is, we see this all over scripture, but my favorite example is in Daniel, when Daniel's friends are thrown into the fire by the king, and they say, you know what, we, and the king essentially is like, let your God save you now. And Daniel's friends say, we know God can save us. We know that. We totally believe God can. But even if God chooses not to, our experience of God, our belief in God's goodness and God's presence with us is not at stake here. Even if God doesn't do this, our belief in who God is is not shaken. We believe in a good parent who wants good things for us, whether we see it in this way or not. So if Jesus was serious about prayer, then prayer is about communion with God, not simply communication to God. That's a part of prayer. Communication is a part of prayer. We ask, we seek, we knock. Prayer requests, prayers of the people, all of that is a part of prayer. But prayer is both a noun and a verb. It's something we do, and it's a way in which we live all of our lives. It's God's invitation to experience all of life with God, who wants to live all of life with us. It's this both and. It's this communion. I keep thinking of, um, we are, I, I feel like I can say this because I went to CU. I've suffered through a lot of bad CU games. And my experience of prayer in this way is God saying, like, I ain't hard to find, you guys. Like, I'm coming. I'm here. I'm with you. I can't not do a prime reference after the last two weekends, you guys. You're lucky there's only one in here. It's God saying, come and pray to me, and I will be found by you. It's God saying, seek me and find me. It's God saying, there's nowhere you can go where I am not. It's God saying, never will I leave you nor forsake you. Surely I am with you always. This is why we see Paul say things like, pray without ceasing. It's why we see Paul say again in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. We do ask. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say because God answers all your prayers in the way that you, God, you want God to. This peace isn't because God acts in the way we would act if we were God. The peace doesn't come with answers all the time. Sometimes it does, and that's a gift. But oftentimes it just comes with God's presence. Prayer is not a way to control God. It's an invitation to commune with God to live all of life with the God who wants to live all of life with us. Henry Nouwen described prayer like this. To pray, I think, does not mean to think about God in contrast to thinking about other things or to spend time with God instead of spending time with other people. Rather, it means to think and live in the presence of God. That doesn't mean we don't go away and pray. That doesn't mean there aren't set times to pray. Again, we hold all of this with nuance, right? It's not an either or. It's a both and. Because ultimately, prayer is opening ourselves up to the mystery of an encounter with a big God. We sang about a God who is an endless ocean. This God is all-powerful. This God is all-knowing. And this God is also deeply good, who wants good things for us, who promises to be with us. 
And if this God is truly God, then we have to surrender to the truth that God's ways are not our ways. You can want an explanation, but you might not get it in the way that you want it. You can ask, you can seek, you can knock, but we do it with the same posture as Jesus had, which is yet not what I will, but what you will. One of my favorite questions to ask in the spiritual direction space is what if God's up to something different here? Could God have a different view? Could God be playing a different game? What if? What if God is all good and always with me and my prayer doesn't get answered in the way that I want God to answer it? How do I hold that? What do I do with that? How does that inform my experience of God? And that's what I want you to wrestle with this week in your own conversations with God and in your conversations with each other as you move through part one in small groups. What if prayer is about opening ourselves up to an encounter with a God whose ways are not our ways? What does that mean for how I approach prayer? What does that mean for how I experience God? And ultimately, can I surrender in trust that no matter what, yet not what I will but what you will, no matter what, God is a good parent who is writing a good story with a good ending and who promises to be with me through everything. As we close, I want to read a short benediction by priest and artist Jan Richardson that captures this essence of prayer as a way of life. I encourage you to close or lower your eyes and open your hands if you want as you let these just beautiful words wash over you. Let it be that you will ever turn yourself Godward in clarity and in confusion, in distress and in delight. May your mind find its hope and its rest in the one whose thoughts are ever stayed on you. Prayer is a continual turning of ourselves Godward. May it be so. Amen. As we transition to communion, I'd like to prepare our hearts with a song of confession. Allow this just to spark your heart if there's something you need to say to the Lord before you come forward. Please do that.